Hello, my brother Dave. Hello. Hey, Bob. <laughs> How are you? I'm awesome. Thanks. How you doing? I'm really good. I'm I'm really good. This is I'm I really appreciate you joining me for this call because this is like the the chillest part of my day is talking to you. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the, you know, entrepreneurial life. It's like once you start working, you just keep going until you don't anymore. But you, as a retired monk, as a mindfulness teacher, as an ex-Marine, like, sorry, let, let everyone know what the name of your business is and like how long you've been working at it and like how you organize yourself to do it. Uh, my website is just my name. It's just davekeneally.com. Uh, I teach in so many different formats and settings. I found that's the easiest way to organize it from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. I offer a weekly teaching via Zoom uh, that's by donation and that's attended by people from all over the world. Uh, as of next month, as of Sunday, May 8th, I'll be offering a monthly teaching in person uh, at the World Beat Cultural Center in uh, San Diego. Cool. Congratulations. That happened. Thank you. It did. Yeah, I'm very excited to be helping that cultural center in Bubble Park in San Diego revive its once uh, active World Beat Sangha, as it'll be called. Cool. So on the second Sunday of every month, I'll be teaching there in person. But that will also be live streamed via Zoom. So it will continue the, without, without a break my weekly Zoom teachings. When COVID hit, you know, my in-person sangha here in San Diego shut down. I did what you do, you know, what, what so many of us had to do. I hired a, you know, video and YouTube coach and learned a bunch of stuff and bought a bunch of equipment and took my weekly teaching online. Uh, but that was two years ago. And so now that it's time, uh, as I kind of intuit, to bring it back in person once a month, I didn't feel comfortable just ending what I was doing via Zoom because I have this international community now. Mm -hmm. um, and so the whole thing is going to continue online and just be live streamed on the second Sunday of every month when we're meeting in person at the World Beat Cultural Center. Oh my gosh, incredible. incredible. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Wait, you have an international following? How many people do you have? Like how many countries are, are watching you for your sangha? Oh, you know, because uh, the people that seek me out the most are Thich Nhat Hanh followers. Mm -hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh has sanghas all over the world. fourteen or 1,500 registered sanghas in our directory, but there are many, many more that are unregistered that are just a half a dozen people meeting in the living room. And his practice centers, three in the United States, two or three in Europe, mm -hmm. one in Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, he, we're, he's everywhere. He's everywhere, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I get uh, you know people on the call from from Mexico, from Venezuela, from South Africa, yeah, <laughs> you know, from everywhere. Wow. So literally uh, all over. Yeah. And that, wow, and they're finding you via the Tiknan Han directory. No, no, I'm actually not even listed on that directory. <laughs> <laughs> so how are people finding you? Uh, you know, it's a great question. <laughs> I think part of it is that um, because I practice as a monk and lived in uh, the two major centers in the United States. Uh, there mm -hmm. are three, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and one in Mississippi. And I, I've practiced at all three of them, but I spent mm -hmm. time living at the East Coast and West Coast monasteries. So I think the American Thich Nhat Hanh practitioners uh, find me just because they've actually met me personally there. Mm -hmm. And then internationally, I, I post on 
Facebook and Instagram uh, just twice a week. <clears throat> I put up a five minute clip of one of my teachings, which usually are, you know, I give a 20 to 45 minute talk uh, mm -hmm. in, inside of the hour that I do every week. Mm -hmm. um, and so I post a five minute clip of that every week on social media. And I also have an email newsletter that uh, has a short teaching and clips of me talking or you know access yeah. to different things uh so yeah. that goes out every week on friday so there's a variety of ways that people are are tracking me down that's amazing dave you've been if i may say it sounds like you've been hauling ass for two years oh I, dear jesus yeah <laughs> at, at some point your irishness yeah at some point you had mentioned to me that you're working like 10 hours a day is that oh, yeah. is that still holding oh, yeah. true so even on your day off, are you are you still working on like you say you're not working on Saturday, but are you working on Saturday? Uh, well, let me break it down for you. Like the way the way it started was very, and again, I think so many people are going to be able to relate to this. Like you know, it was yeah. COVID. Like I was stuck in a, in my house, you know? right? So I just oh, worked yeah. constantly, <laughs> <laughs> and that was easy to do and even even fun. And and I had a lot of work to do uh, to 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 increase my outreach internationally, to mm -hmm. move digitally, and mm -hmm. on and I didn't have an email. Excuse me, I didn't have an email campaign going and things like that. I, mm. I completely revamped my website. Ah, you're which, starting from scratch, literally, like not you know, just with, in ways. terms of like um, visual platforms and like online presence. Like I didn't realize you didn't even have. An email thing happening. Nope. No, I had a very wow. simple website because I already had, you know, hundreds of people in my in-person community here in San Diego. So I wasn't mm. trying to to be uh, internationally accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but now now that I am, yeah, if I would say for the first year, I just kind of like put my head down and just work. And uh, then I started to see the the chinks in that armor, if you will. Uh, mm. No surprise, right? Like mm -hmm. hustle culture mm -hmm. is toxic. It's toxic. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was starting to get burned out and exhausted. But then I was kind of in it, you know, and I had I had committed to a lot of deliverables. I was, you know, teaching every week uh, and I, I, I'm training other facilitators in my sangha right now. Mm. Um, but because my sangha is a new one, because my community, sangha can be translated as community of practice, but I prefer to translate it as family or family mm -hmm. of practice. And so because mm -hmm. my, my San Diego family was starting from scratch, most of the practitioners, most of our members are new practitioners. Uh, and so, when you say new, you mean like they'd never meditated before ever? No. Uh, huh. Yeah. The. My definition of beginner, which is not a term I use, because okay, that doesn't yeah. make a like the uh, right sequential right. There isn't a hierarchy, right? Right. Exactly. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, but it is helpful from the point of view of a teacher to have an idea like: Am I talking to experienced practitioners, or am I talking to relatively new practitioners? Mm -hmm. And the way I draw the line is 10 years. Like once you've been practicing consistently <laughs> for 10 years, you're really uh -huh. no longer a beginner. Like it's reasonable for the teacher to expect that you've encountered a lot of the most common pitfalls and challenges and trials and triumphs. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where I draw my line, 10 years. 
And so, yes, the vast majority of my sangha initially, when it was in person in San Diego, were people mm-hmm. who had been practicing with any regularity for less than 10 years. Wow. Um, and so I didn't really have people to sub for me. So I think I took one Sunday off in the first two or three years. Wow. Um, yeah, took a little bit of work. Took a little bit of work <laughs> to build that up. But now things have grown, and now I'm training new facilitators with some, you know, and some of the more experienced practitioners, and mm. uh, and I can see like, ooh, you know, my body, mind, and spirit are all a bit depleted from that level of mm. intensity for that mm-hmm. length of time. It's, mm-hmm. it's not what I would recommend to any of my students, right? I would never right. tell a consultation client of mine, you know, to work seven days a week. Um, right. Never. So even though sometimes that is the reality, wouldn't tell them to quit their job if that's what happened for six months, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like ultimate reality and everyday reality have to operate in relationship there. And so I would say now, two years into the online iteration of my teaching group, that I'm just starting to hit the break now, just starting to hit the break and say like, okay. There's nothing happening that's so pressing that, that I can't take one day a week off. There's nothing happening that's so pressing that I need to be in a, you know, in a constantly putting out fires mentality. Like I, I have a lot of things that I offer my students every single week, you know, mm-hmm. a teaching via Zoom, an email with teachings in it. Many of them meet with me one-on-one for consultations. Like there's, I have a lot of scheduled offerings now. Mm-hmm you know, maintaining a social media presence, all of that stuff. But I've got it down, you know, you've probably heard the term minimum viable product. Like I've got it yeah. MVP to the point where I can manage it in a six-day work week. Um, and my ultimate aspiration, where I'm headed, is what I think uh, is a more human and sustainable work schedule is to work four out of the seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, about nine months a year. And even mm. that is including a full year off from the work that primarily produces your income mm. once every 10 years. And I've been doing that for decades. I've been taking that year for decades. I find that very helpful as well. Wow. No kidding. Oh, yeah. You take oh, yeah. a year off every decade? Every 10 years. Yeah. I plan for it, of course, you know, because you have to. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you start planning from the beginning? I mean, obviously, I'm thinking like budgeting, financing, like. Exactly. Yeah. I just always have it in mind. I always have it in mind. Like, oh, when's that going to be? You know, where am I going to live? Uh, looking for that opportunity, like when maybe moving from one place to another, boom, okay, that's, I'm, I'm moving out of this place anyway. I'm going to take that year right there. Boom, or something like that. How do you plan? Like, how do you, how do you save for that? You know, it's like, do you have like a certain number monetary wise in mind that you got to have set aside before you take off that year? Or is it like a, because I'm assuming this is like a a work free year, not the work free work from, you know, taking a break from the work that generates your income, but like all work versus like, oh, I'm just going to go wash dishes for some like some change. No, not at all. Uh, Let's be clear. I, I, all I want to take a break from is the thing that I'm doing primarily for my okay uh because my work is what i love yeah Um, i don't want to take a break from all of it necessarily but i'm very aware that if you spend every year that you spend 
inside of the same track. Like, mm-hmm. this is what I do. This is how, this is who I am. This is mm-hmm. what people expect of me. Has its pluses and its minuses. You're simultaneously deepening and enriching and expanding your network and all these wonderful things that come with consistency, of course. Mm-hmm. But it also has a downside. Every light casts a shadow. So if I spend 10 years focused on the same projects, mm-hmm. then I'm developing blind spots. I'm burrowing my head further and further in the proverbial sand. I'm you know, unavoidably less and less open to innovation, a new possibility, mm-hmm. change, uh, transformation, etc. So I, I find it really important to take at least three months a year off and one full year off every 10 years. I'm sorry, this is the first I'm hearing of this for all the conversations we've had, like how to take a year off. You've done all this work for your online presence and international community over the last two, just over two years now. And let's say you do this for eight more years. Then, then what does life look like? You know? Oh, I I have no idea. And that's the point. (laughs) That's the point. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So let's back up. I would love to hear your starter story of like, I know you're a former Marine and like, there's also a personality type I associate with Marines. So is it like the, that you're a Marine and then you form this personality type or you like go into that with this personality type and it like is a good place to exercise your your ways of being? The way I would say it is this, like for for any Americans that are listening, (laughs) picture the uh, commercial that, is put onto television by the United States Marine Corps, right? That's being dangled in front of the pimply-faced teenager. And it's this commercial where the kid (laughs) is sitting there, like, on the couch, playing video games and lost. And, you know, he usually looks a a bit out of shape and unhappy. And then by the end of the 30-second spot, he's in this, you know, dress blues uniform. He's often carrying a sword, which is (laughs) kind of silly, but (laughs) part of the thing. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, he looks uh, like the exact opposite of what was earlier portrayed. Right. He has gone from boy to man or from young woman to adult woman. I've never I've never seen this commercial. Are you are you painting a portrait for us? Well, the commercial exists, but the image, but the imagery translates nonetheless. Like this is what the Marine Corps is selling. Yeah. Right. What it's selling is transformation. So when people ask me, like, well, why did you go into the Marine Corps, as, as I feel you are, is implied in your question, uh, like, what aspects of your personality or your character led you to that? Mm-hmm. The way I like to answer it, because I don't want to continue that, uh, that the fallacy of that romanticization. I think mm-hmm. a much better way to say it is, I was in so much suffering as an adolescent. I was in so much pain that I was very literally dealing with suicidal ideation. And I had a nervous breakdown at the age of 16. Uh, it, it wasn't just that I was intense. It's that I was living in a city and I was poor. Life was intense. <laughs> I'm a first-generation American. I was born to immigrant parents. So, yeah, I had, I had a lot of uh, ladders to climb and holes to dig myself out of and things to figure out without a lot of guidance or networking support, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, life was really hard. Um, when I was a teenager in the Bronx in New York City in the 80s, 
<laughs> uh, it was a very dangerous and very violent place. Uh, my home was a very dangerous and violent place that was extraordinarily dysfunctional, suffered from, you know, components of mental illness and addiction. Um, so when I encountered this teaching, this, excuse me, this advertisement uh, from the Marine Corps, that's exactly what I wanted. What I wanted mm. was to transform, was to become something else, something better, something more mm -hmm. to uh, achieve this new identity. And what is not spoken about in those ads or in the recruitment or all of that is that they, they promise that and all you have to be willing to promise in return is you have to be willing to die. And so the person who makes that decision, in my opinion, is the person who wants to change so badly that they'd rather die than remain that person that they are. That's what's, that's what's going on uh, for, for the young men and women, especially in, in a country like ours that is almost perpetually at war. It's not like you're joining the military in Finland and you're like, oh, I'm going to get to wear a uniform <laughs> and nothing's going to happen and then I'm going to go back to college. Yeah. No, if you join the military in the United States, especially as I did, if you join the United States Marine Corps, you know, yeah. front line, tip of the spear type of an organization inside of our military, what you're saying is what I was saying, and I, I wasn't using these words, right? This was an emotional experience I was having. But what I was saying to myself and the world was I hate being Dave Keneally so much that I'm willing to die, to risk death, to change who he is. Um, and so, yes, that is, that is a certain type of personality type, right? There are people that in that degree of suffering would retreat. Yeah. Um, and then, and then there are other people that kind of charge ahead and, uh, and there are a lot of things, right. That play into that difference. But yes. I was one of the people who was like, okay, this is so terrible and so frightening that I'm going to charge forward in a way that promises to make me, uh, invulnerable to some of these dangers and promises to, uh, change me into something better. So why did you ultimately leave? Like the only other story I have in terms of military is Adams. Um, and it's, it's different. It's the same, but it's different. So, and I know why he left. So why did you end up leaving? Well, that the first thing you learn when you go in is that the promise of that transformation has been misrepresented. <laughs> in, a, in a variety of ways. Right. But one of the most important ones is that... Uh, no one, no thing, no organization, no idea uh, can make you, the individual, disciplined or strong. Uh, that cannot be done. That cannot be done. Only I can choose to discipline myself. And so what the military, in fact, does uh, is create an environment that is even harsher and more severe than the environment that you're coming out of, that you're in the environment you're having difficulty disciplining yourself in. And so they just make it even more clear, like, well, if you behave in a disciplined, organized, strong, and courageous way, well, then, you know, this tremendous reward and accolade will be your bounty. Uh, but <laughs> if you fail to behave in a disciplined, organized, brave, strong, and courageous way, then your life will be a living hell, right? Your life will be mm. made extremely difficult. And, and now mm -hmm. here I'm speaking more specifically to the Marine Corps, which of course is famous for mm -hmm. you know, treating its 
soldiers, it's men and women, you mm-hmm. know, very poorly as a way to make them tough. And that works. And that works. Um, and so that, that's the first thing you realize. You're like, oh, okay, this actually isn't just like some path process. Like, oh, I'm a Marine and I, you know, I do what I'm told and that turns me into this powerful person. Right? It's just an environment where it's like you have a much more stark choice. You know, there's very little middle ground. It's like you're either a very powerful person who's successful in that model or your life is really, really unpleasant. <laughs> so how long were you in for? I was in for five years. Five whole years. Five whole years. I was a a sergeant in an infantry battalion uh, when I I finished. And then to answer your question about why I got out, maybe I'll just tell one quick story. And it kind of, I think it kind of says it all. So I spent the first three years that I was in uh, trying really hard to get into this kind of elite program, even inside of the Marine Corps, uh, called the Marines Enlistment Commissioning Education Program, or MESEP, in the world of acronyms. Uh, And basically what that meant was, if I could kind of stand out as the top of the top of the top, uh, they take those people, they grab them, and they say, okay, we really want you to stay with us for life. Um, So why don't you take a break from your active duty military service right now, go to college for four years and we'll pay for it and we'll pay you a salary while you're in college so you don't even have to work and then you come back and you commission as an officer and you owe us i think it was six years or ten years or something like that but that didn't really matter the idea was you were doing that because you wanted to make a lifelong career out of being Mm -hmm. a military person out of being a soldier Mm -hmm. and so i went in and again you know I'm adding to these intense choices with the intensity of my personality. I am a very intense um, by nature. Uh, and we can talk about what that means, you know, but, but it's true. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's so. why we're friends, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think it's why we both like New York City. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I just raged for the first three years that I was in the military. I just gave it everything I had. Uh, if there was some crazy or dangerous or new thing to do, I raised my hand. And I volunteered. I broke the rule of never volunteering for anything, and I volunteered <laughs> constantly. And so I, I ended up getting to do all this really fun stuff, uh, mountain warfare training packages and, you know, everything. Just training how to operate as a soldier all over the world in every climate and environment. And, uh, and after three years of that type of lunacy, uh, they they tapped me on the shoulder and they were like, oh, you know, we want we want we want you like let's let's do this thing. Here's the program that we know you want. We want you to be a, a career marine. But I said no, and the reason is because just prior to that, I had this experience. So I had spent a couple of years in a unit that was a helicopter company. Our job was very specialized. We were a group of about 300 that traveled on a you know around a little pack of helicopters. And our job was to fly at night from an aircraft carrier off an enemy's coast and to attack a coastal airport. You know, you may have noticed that it's very common for, all, for mm-hmm. ob- perhaps obvious reasons mm-hmm. to put big airports next to the ocean if you can. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the Marine Corps just maintains at all times a unit that that's what they do. They attack and seize a coastal enemy airport. And there's a whole bunch of things you need to know how to do to do that job. And that's what we trained in for years. Just bam, like 24 yeah. to 48 hours of extreme violence. You know, yeah. helicopters land, 
bombs are blowing up everywhere, bullets are flying everywhere, and uh, and we we take the airfield, and there are planes. Meanwhile, you know, with thousands of soldiers for that invasion, you know, at that point, flying overhead, waiting for us, giving the green light that it's okay to land. That was the job. Uh, for for years, I trained in a unit that did that. I was a radio operator, and so my job specifically was to stand next to the man in charge, the major in charge in this case, and to report from the battlefield to him and to send his orders out. That was, that was, the, day, that was the day, or two days, depending. And one day, after years of training for this, uh, the generals, you know, the powers that be, changed the mission parameters and just added at the last second, like, oh, and also there are 12 hostages being held in this airport. And part of your job is to bring them back alive. And so we go and the mission starts and we get, you know, into it. And at one point I turn, because I'm seeing what's actually unfolding in front of me, right? I'm, I'm on the radio. I'm aware of everything that's happening. And I turned to the major and I said, with all due respect, sir, this is bullshit. And he's like, what do you mean, Keneally? <laughs> and I said, there's no way we bring back any hostages. So that's not that's not even possible. Like we, you've been training, we've been training this group of 300 for years to kill everyone here. That's how you, that's how you take an airport by force quickly. You kill everyone. You destroy everything that's not essential to the landing of the planes that are flying above you. And you do it as fast as you possibly can without any discrimination. And I said, like, you can't just flip the switch and turn that off. That's what this unit now does. I said, you send us to do this, we kill everybody, including those 12 hostages. And he looked at me and he said, you're absolutely correct. Let's just hope they never send us for this. That'd be silly. <laughs> and then we went on. And Bob, the only way I can say it is I had a moment of insight. In that moment, I was three years in to having dedicated my life to this identity, to this training, to this purpose. And in that moment, standing there on a little hill, knee-high grass next to a Jeep. I'll never forget it. I realized that I had spent three years training to be a club, to be a blunt instrument in another man's hand. And I felt just how disempowered I was in that moment. It was a horrible feeling. And so when they offered me the program to continue on as an officer, I said no. I served out the couple of years I had left on my contract and I left the military because I didn't want to be that. It's amazing to me that even after that moment, you were still able to keep it together is probably the easiest way of saying it. Keeping your shit together for two years to finish out your contract. And knowing that you came from a a life where you already had suicidal ideations. How? Oh, by then you're just in it. You know, you're... Yeah, yeah uh, just like any kind of institutionalizing experience, mm-hmm. uh, the opposite is true. It, it was really hard to leave. <laughs> mm. Staying in becomes the comfort zone. It's what you know. Everybody you know is in the military. Every mm. party you go to is all wow. men and their wives. Like, it yeah, sounds like a really. It sounds like an abusive relationship. Exactly. I mean, yeah. you ever you ever drank in a cop bar in New York City? Uh, you know, like no, no way. Very, uh, one, one, I don't drink. Two, I don't like being around that many cops. Well, that's the thing. That's that's why I pointed out because yeah, right. The reason that doesn't feel good 
is because they're all living in a completely mm. different culture than you are. Yeah. And as a consequence of that, uh, they spend they feel most comfortable spending all their time with each other, very naturally, and with each other's families. Like, you want to be the person at the, the only person at the barbecue who doesn't have a pistol hidden on their body somewhere? Like, that's <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, Dave. So how did you get from, you told, you've told me a little bit about this story, about, like, how you went from the Marines to, like, the rest of, how old were you when you got out? I was in from the ages of 19 to 24. Okay, so five years. I met, oh, how old were you? You were in your early 30s by the time I met you. So give it to me from when you left to, to that moment in the desert with Ani. Okay. Uh, so I got out of the military at 24, really just knowing that I didn't want to do that, but not knowing what I wanted to do otherwise. And so I spent a good four or five years after that. Uh, just wandering the surface of the earth. <laughs> I, did, I did a little bit of everything. Right. A little bit of everything. Because um, being in the Marines has taught you to be able to survive anywhere, basically, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. the combination of military training and having grown up in New York City. Mm. I mean, couldn't, don't, you, don't you think you could grab a teenager from the Bronx and drop them anywhere on the planet and they'd be kind of okay? <laughs> No, actually, because as you say, the abusive relationship, it's like I've never lived any other place besides New York City. Like uh, I entertain the thought, and but it's also like, you know, you you pass for like, you know, an average American male. I stand out if I leave any place that doesn't have a population of Asians. So you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm half Latino, half right. Irish. Um, right. My, uh, my mom was born and raised in Ecuador, and my father in Ireland. They met in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're correct. Even though I'm a little darker skinned uh, than your average Irish person. Ver- uh, versus you just tan really well, da- uh, Dave. <laughs> you, just, yeah, you just tan exactly. really well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just tan really well all the time. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> On a cloudy day, you know. <laughs> right. right. Um, but yeah, you're correct. I, I you know, my teachers uh, are pretty international. Uh, um, you know, I. When I'm in Latin America, people think I'm Latin. You know, oh, really? when I'm in Europe, people think I'm European. You know, wow. if I have long hair and a beard, people from the Middle East think I'm from the Middle East. Um, no kidding! Wow. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Huh. So yes, you're you're correct. I I do have that luxury. And then, of course, carrying the last name Camille, you know, <laughs> right. like announces me in an administrative sense as a Caucasian person. So yeah, there's yeah. A, there's a lot of liberties there that you're smart to point out. But I'm just talking about it in terms of capacity. Oh, yeah. Like, Hands when you down. live in New York Hands City, right. you encounter people from all over the world. Yeah. Like, you have, a, you have an understanding that someone in, in most other American cities you know, does not. Right. Um, uh, you can make the argument, like, let's use another large American city that, that the same is true if you grew up in L.A., mm. but it's really not because while there are people from all over the world living in L.A., uh, you have to get in your car and drive into their section of the city, which is nowhere near yours, hmm. and then find reason to be there, uh, as opposed to New York City, where every time you walk down to a subway station and get on a train, you know, you could be standing next to a person of almost any socioeconomic class sure. from almost anywhere in the world. Sure. 
Uh, that is not true almost anywhere else in the United States. Yeah, this has been pointed out to me relatively recently. Uh, some friends moved to Colorado. Um, they they didn't grow up in New York City, but they lived in New York City for a while, for many years, and they moved out to Colorado. And they're missing New York City for that very reason, mm-hmm. for yeah. that proximity to people that you just well, don't get any place else. And if you've never left, uh, you don't even know that. And no. So you go, you know, I'm told you go about to it. Kansas or something, and you're just <laughs> like, "What the hell? Like, yeah. why is everybody in the line at this, you know, hamburger shop? Why do they all look the same? Like, why are they all right. white? Why are they all wearing exactly right. the same clothes? It's quite horrifying. You feel almost like you're in a bad movie. No, I've been there, and it's like, but see, that's me on vacation, so I don't think a whole lot of it. I forget right. that this is their life, day in and day out, because exactly. I get to leave, and that's not my life. So, you know, people ask me, like, why haven't you lived anyplace else? And it was like, because the stories that people tell me. Like, mm-hmm. ah, so It's very hard to leave. It's, it's yeah. really hard to leave New York City and go live somewhere else in the United for sure. And here, and here you are living in San Diego. But that is after how many years living, like, everywhere else. So, Dave, continue. You got out of the military. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time just wandering. Uh, you know, I... I bartended, I worked in an art gallery, I traveled internationally and floated around. I I went to Berkeley for a year and studied dramatic art. I did a lot of different things. Oh my God. Um, (laughs) But but I was was lost. And then uh, 9-11 happened. And my childhood best friend, who I had joined the Marine Corps with, uh, Mm. a man named Christian Regenhard, had gotten out of the military as I had and had become a New York City firefighter. He was out of uh, Ladder Company 141, Red Hook, Brooklyn. And because of their proximity to the towers, they were among the first, possibly even the first engine to arrive on the scene. Uh, so he was killed that day, uh, running, running up in one of the towers as it collapsed. I actually lost a few friends that day, as I'm sure many, many of the New York City listeners uh, had, had that experience. And so in a lot of ways, that tragedy, right, the, the scope of that tragedy in, in how sort of public and international it was, and yet at the same time, it couldn't have been more personal, right? Like from the age of 10 years old, my childhood best friend, my companion in every aspect of my life up until that point, right, for 18 years, from the age of 10 to 28, just gone, like disintegrated, gone, like not even a body, you know, to mourn. So what that experience did for me was it showed me how lost I was because I didn't feel terribly lost, right? I felt like yeah. a young, young person, young adult, just sort of charging through life and, you know, having trials and triumphs. Uh, but when that happened, it sat me down and in my morning, which was uh, the first time I took that year off, I took a year off there in my late 20s. And I just spent an entire year living in nature after 9-11. It wasn't a conscious decision so much as an imperative. It was something I could not deny. I just didn't want to be in a box. And so I, I spent that, that year outdoors, camping all over the world and the United States and grieving. And what I saw in all that time, sometimes you know, months at a time before I was like, come back to civilization, what I saw in all that spaciousness that our modern life, especially urban modern life, which is my preferred way of living when, when I'm in the fold and not off the grid, doesn't provide. What that space gave me was it let me do a real 
self-inquiry. I was like, wow, like, how are you really doing at this point in your life? I was 28 years old. And the answer that I came back with was everything that I'm doing is, is meaningless because nothing that I was focusing on, whether it was trying to become an actor or whether it was trying to accumulate wealth, whether it was trying to get laid, like all these things that I was, you know, somewhat naturally pursuing, none of them mattered in the face of that grief. And so again, I was in this situation as I had been when I got out of the military that I didn't know what direction to go in, but I knew that the, the way that I was navigating uh, was poor, that I had no compass, that I, had, mm -hmm. that I was on no path. Um, I was a fallen, I am a fallen Catholic. Uh, and so my lack of connection to my root faith uh, and its practices left me vulnerable to that as well. There I was kind of sitting in the desert, let's say, in the middle of nowhere by myself, looking around being like, wow, the, whatever drives a person to go live their life well, uh, whatever deep intention is at the small, you know, is a hand at the small of your back in your life, I had not yet connected with mine. And that experience and the time that I gave myself to process that tragedy showed me that. And it was during that time that I met uh, the yoga instructor that you mentioned, Ani. And she pulled me aside one day. We were practicing just, you know, a bunch of rock climbing, ragtag, world traveling, ne'er-do-wells, you know, some of my favorite people. Uh, <laughs> and we were just practicing around her because she was a yoga instructor. And we saw her practicing in the morning. So one or two of us started hanging out with her. And the next thing you know, she was leading a dozen of us in a class every morning um, out there in the Joshua Tree National Park in the high desert in Southern California. And after you know, a month or so of that, she kind of pulled me aside one day. I was like, hey, Dave, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. Said, Are you just exercising? And I laughed and answered honestly. And I was like, basically, I mean, it's pretty calming, this form of exercising, but I'm used to maintaining essentially the fitness of a professional athlete as you do in a Marine Corps infantry unit. Um, so this just feels good. It just feels good to be this strong and this fit and this flexible to work every single muscle in my body. Like, yeah, that's why I like yoga. And oh my God, this incredible teacher, she just sat me down and broke it down. It was like, Dave, this is not a form of exercise. This is a 5,000 year old prayer that we're still practicing today, that it's designed to manufacture moments of very controlled suffering like the fear or strain of balancing on one foot so that we can, inside of that safe container, train ourselves to bring our awareness again and again directly into headlong at the suffering itself, as opposed to falling into our more habitual practice of running away or distracting ourselves. She said, by practicing it consistently, we flex that muscle and develop the ability to face down our suffering. And in this way, it diminishes simply by being held in an increasingly high resolution of awareness. And so you have to think about who she was saying that to, right? She was yeah. saying that to a 28-year-old who had been in extreme suffering his entire life up to that point, who had traded a life of danger and violence in an unstable home, in a very violent city, at a very violent time in its history, in poverty, for five years of professional violence. 
And so I was standing there looking at her. Basically, what she was saying is like, I know how deeply you're suffering, and I know how much you love to train. And yoga is a way that you can train and diminish that suffering, a way that you can train and heal. And as is my habit, nature versus nurture, you know, as is my character or my life experience, where do you draw the line? I dove in. I dove in. And I became, I became a yogi. I, I built my life around that. Uh, then for many, many years, uh, I ultimately became a master yoga instructor and a yoga therapist and a teacher of yoga teachers. Uh, I ended up specializing in doing work with the American Cancer Society and teaching yoga teachers how to work with the sick, the dying, people going through chemo and radiation and their families. But the problem was, this is a long answer, but you asked me a big question. <laughs> <laughs> the problem was for me and my experience of yoga, particularly in the United States, uh, was that there was still something missing. And when I met the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, he showed me, my teacher, the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, whom I'm now an ordained disciple. And for a while, I practiced as a shaved head brown robe monk in his tradition as well. So wait, but how did you get to Thich Nhat Hanh from the, the yoga, th you know, in the desert, delving into um, yoga life and career, and then Thich Nhat Hanh? Did somebody like hand you a book? Like, did you find it online? Like, I've never asked you this question. So let's say it this way. So there I was, right, practicing all this yoga stuff doing this whole yoga thing, like studying with masters, doing advanced trainings, all the things, uh, year-long intensives. But what wasn't there that Thich Nhat Hanh School offered and emphasized not only as an aspect of spiritual life, but as the most important aspect of spiritual life was family, was community, to use the Buddhist term, was sangha. All of those years, all of that dedication to yoga, you know, practicing for 14 days and taking off the new moon and practicing for 14 days and taking off the full moon, all of it uh, did not produce spiritual community in my life. Uh, and I think, you know, anybody who's gone to a yoga studio and slapped down a mat and kind of awkwardly acknowledged at best, you know, the people to their left and their right knows what I'm talking about. Like, that's yeah. just not how it's being done here. No. And so I hit that ceiling uh, after, you know, I don't know, a decade or so <laughs> uh, of dedicating myself to that exclusively. Uh, and so I, uh, it was actually a book. I was in a bookstore in New York City and going through a very difficult time in my life. It was actually right around the time you and I were first becoming friends. So, you know. And that was also, correct me if I'm wrong, that was also a time in your life that, that you were feeling a little challenged? I was going through a very, very hard time then. Yeah, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, wrestling with elements of, you know, how painful it was to be back in New York City, a city mm. that I had left, you know, because it was just so painful to be there. I, I so associated it with 9-11, those tragedies, and the death of some very, very close friends, including my, my best friend. Uh, but it was deeper than that still. I was just going through yet another rite of passage into a deeper level of understanding myself. and taking responsibility for myself. And I was going through a lot of anger. I had a lot of anger arise when I came home because, you know, I'd been living in California and hanging out with yogis and 
driving in a car and so not having to deal with as many strangers as you do in New York City, many mm-hmm. different, mm-hmm. you know, real world life experiences. You know, California life, yeah, and you could say the same about middle American life. A better way to say it is life in a car culture, by mm. being in a pedestrian culture, uh, it's very sanitized, right? Like you, you drive to a place in a box and then you get to that box and you meet the friends that you've already prearranged to meet there. You go into the store and purchase the thing and then you get back in your box and you drive home to your box. Like it's very yes. sanitized. Mm-hmm. Um, New York City's not like that. And so I had a lot of anger coming up <laughs> you know, in that return. I was just like, ah! Oh, yeah. Get out of my face. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, the personal space. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but but deeper than the personal space. Yes. Like, you know, at a very deep level, I was forced to kind of look at myself again because I, I couldn't pretend by spending all my time in these supposedly peaceful places that I was internally peaceful. Mm. I was not. I had just put myself in an environment where I was being less triggered. I was still a very emotionally reactive, confused young man. Um. And New York reminded me of that because New York keeps it real. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm in this bookstore and I saw a book called Anger, Wisdom for Cooling the Flames. And it was written by oh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, my and, I, and I was like, ooh, I think I need that. I think I should, <laughs> yeah. I think I should read that. Anger <laughs> slash Dave. <laughs> and I did. And yeah. that led to, you know, a half a dozen of his hundred published books later. I just picked his phone and I just called the monastery. I mean, this was before, you know, everything was online. I just called him. And I'm friends now with the monk, uh, Brother Fok Kong, Brother Emptiness of the Dharma, uh, who answered the phone. And I explained my situation. I was like, I'm a yogi, but I'm really interested in your teacher's writings. And I'd like to explore more. Like, what's the next step? And he laughed. And he was like, hey, man. (laughs) Very warm and inviting as this, you know, signature of the Tikkun tradition, uh, like, just come up here, man. Just come up here for at least a week and practice with us. At the time, the East Coast Monastery, which is now in the Catskills of upstate New York, at that time it was in Vermont. And so, you know, it took some months, of course, to get a week off and organize it and buy the plane tickets and all that. But I went up there and I've been practicing with them ever since. When was that? What year was that? If you and I met when you were 32, we were in massage school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, just right after you and I met. That was like two, because I, I want to say you and I met in 2005, and that was in the spring of 2006. Wow. Because I graduated summer of 2006, so I didn't realize that. Right. You had already, you were just finishing up credits in New York because you'd already done some work in, out in California, right? Correct. Yeah. I'd already yeah. been a professional massage therapist for three or four years at that point and had mm-hmm. done uh, a year long training in California. But for a variety of reasons, including having some veterans benefit GI Bill money left to use mm-hmm. and uh, admiring the program at the Swedish Institute of Massage in New York City. When I moved back east, I took a year off, another year off and did a full year of training at the Swedish Institute. So you spent that week up in Vermont at the monastery. Mm-hmm. Then what, you, what, you never left? Or you like came back and then you went back? Like, How did you end up living there for a few years and then finally becoming ordained as a, as a monk? Oh, okay. So a good way to think about like what happened in that week in Vermont is that I was very similar to the conversation I had with that yoga instructor, I was shown 
the foundation of the practice. If I, if I was to say, summarize the two things that I was given that week, the first is that unlike a lot of the way yoga is taught, I was explained to very clearly like, hey, this is not a practice that you do 20 minutes at a time. This is something that we are doing all the live long day. Zen practice means trying to be mindful. And I define mindfulness just for people who are um, not familiar with my style of teaching who might be listening. I define mindfulness as paying attention with love. So they, they weren't using those terms then, uh, but that's essentially what they were teaching. They were saying like, what we're doing here and the whole reason all the monastery is set up this way, the reason there's a bell going off every 15 minutes reminding you to stop what you're doing and take a conscious breath is because we are training ourselves in this very conducive setting to be mindful, to be paying attention with love to everything, good, bad, neutral, and mixed. So that was the first thing that they showed me that I, that I was, had not yet gotten from my yoga practice up until that point. Um, the ever presence of Zen practice. And then the second thing that they did was they connected, and, and yoga has some of these elements, they, they connected the practice very powerfully to morality. Part of practicing Buddhist practice is living a moral life. Um, it, it's not enough to be, I, I'll say it this way, uh, if I am paying the kind of clinical attention that I am paying when I'm lying on the ground looking through the sight of a rifle, right? that requires a tremendous amount of concentration. If I want to hit a human-sized target right, with a rifle at 500 yards, I have to be aware of every cell in my body. I have to be aware of the rate of my breathing. I have to be aware of the direction of the wind. I have to be very concentrated in that moment pull that trigger and send around 500 yards downrange and hit a human sized target. But that is not mindfulness. That's, that's just concentration. That's just mm. concentration. It becomes mindfulness when I am also bringing to bear my heart's deepest intention, my desire to be peace, love, and compassion in the world. If I am looking down the scope of that rifle with that in mind, then I'm practicing mindfulness. And this was something that even though it's embedded in yogic practice, right? There's a lot of talk in yoga about truthfulness and non-stealing and et cetera. Uh, but it wasn't being heavily emphasized in the American way that I was being taught it. And, and at that point that I was teaching it. Uh, and yet here was the very first thing they talked about when I got to the monastery. Was like, So we want you to be paying attention all the time. And the reason we want you to be paying attention all the time is so that you can be moral, so that your actions will be loving. Because isn't that what you want? And my answer was yes. Like that's exactly that is what I want. <laughs> I want to be a good person. I want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem in this world on fire with war. And so what that week did was open that door, was show me like, oh, here's a practice that is being taught and lived by these real people right here in the United States in a deeper way than anything I had yet 
encountered in the world of yoga. Not to say that it doesn't exist, because I hadn't encountered it. And so again, given my nature, I dove in. So I started going up to the monastery three or four times a year, (laughs) practicing with my local sangha in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which still exists, the Rock Blossom Sangha, shout out, Um, and training every week with them. And years went by like this, where I just kept deepening and deepening and deepening into my practice until finally, from the days of the Buddha, you know, from, from thousands of years ago, there's a tradition of what's called the rains retreat. What that means is in the rainy season in southern India, where these practices came from, it didn't really make sense to be wandering around on the road barefoot, begging for food and trying to offer the teachings because the roads were covered in mud and they were dangerous and the weather was so foul. And so back in those days, the monks and nuns would gather back at their home monastery and spend three months in a cloister. Uh, and during those three months of not leaving, uh, they had an opportunity to train and to you know, receive teachings from the elders and all of this, to reconnect socially. Um, and this is still practiced in a lot of traditions today, including in the Plum Village tradition, which is the name of the tradition of the Zen master Chikan Han after the home monastery in southwest France. So I had always aspired to do that 90-day retreat. Who's got 90 days to take off, right? Uh, so. I finally organized it and put my life together in such a way that I could go for 90 days to the monastery. And, I, and then I didn't leave for about six years. <laughs> 90 days. Oh, yeah, sure. Six years. Same, yeah. right? Same. <laughs> if you can leave for 90 days, you can leave for six years, right? Well, that's the thing, right? <laughs> I had subletted my place. I had saved up a bunch of money. I had, you know, on and on and on. Wow, and then you just never left. Yeah. Okay. So... So then you're an ordained monk. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, when that story of like why you decided to not be a monk anymore or like how it was that you you found that monk life was not for you. So yeah, to say it briefly, where I landed, right, after five or six years of living in monasteries and you know years of training to become a monk and then actually ordaining and becoming a monk, everybody does that for their own reasons. <laughs> we're all, even though on the surface, a group of people all performing the same yoga posture or chanting the same chant or sitting in the same meditation hall, may appear that they're all doing the same thing. The exact opposite is the case. Everybody's doing their own thing because everyone is practicing their own practice with their own life histories and their own intentions. So I was learning as I was practicing as a monk what. And as a full-time resident of a monastery, better said, you know, for those whole five or six years, what I was learning was why I was really there. I was uncovering myself in my practice, going deeper and deeper into my own heart and uncovering what I really cared about and what really motivated me. And in the end, the thing that most attracted me to that lifestyle was, as we've been talking about, was sangha, was community, was connection. I had no aspiration to achieve enlightenment alone in a cave in the Himalayas. My aspiration was to be peace in the world, to be truth and love made manifest in the very cities that I had grown up in and lived my life in. I'm a city boy. And that was not exactly what I found in monastic settings, uh, 
largely because that's not what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. uh, not to say that it's not a community. It is a community, and it is a sangha, and it's very beautiful, and there's a lot of interconnection in it. But it's also a place for training. It's not a place that you really make your home. Uh, you're living there as a guest, even as a monastic. You are a guest at your own monastery. You don't own it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, what came up, what I experienced was the pain of disconnection. I, I felt like that my quote-unquote brothers and sisters were much less like siblings as I understood it, given my upbringing, uh, less friends, like as I understood it, given the very strong bonds I had formed in a violent childhood in New York City and a violent, you know, tour of duty in the Marine Corps. And these people weren't exactly my friends. They were my spiritual co-workers. Mm-hmm. And that was painful for me. I didn't expect mm-hmm. that. Uh, and I didn't even know that's what I was looking for mm-hmm. uh, until I bumped up against it that soon. And so I went to my mentors and my teachers and my support, my brothers and sisters, and I explained my suffering. I feel like, oh, you know, I just feel so alone here in a crowded room. I feel like we're not really connecting with each other, that we don't spend a lot of time going into what the other person is experiencing or practicing. And this was something I had touched in the yoga world, right, with not knowing what the person was feeling in the mat next to me. Um, in the Buddhist world, I found it because I didn't feel like there was a lot of time and energy put in actually talking about what we were all practicing, what we all really cared about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got two answers uh, to go to the story that you're asking for. I got two answers in response. There were the people who said, the elders who said, well, uh, that thing you're looking for, call it friendship, call it whatever you want, is an attachment. And we are here to transcend those attachments. So that thing you desire is an obstacle, it's a fetter. And eventually, if you keep practicing in this style, you may transcend it. And I really didn't like that answer. (laughs) That didn't sit with me, I didn't agree. And then there was another group that responded this way. And they said, that thing you're experiencing, that pain of the absence of friendship, but it's more than just that, that kind of family that you're looking for, I look for it too. I, I wish that this was more like that and that we spent less time performing ceremonies and, you know, running a resort for guests, which we spent a lot of our time doing. And we kind of had more time to just be with each other and be friends and be family and talk about our lives and our feelings. Less time in silence and more time in communion. And they said, but this is how it is. That's not going to change. And so you're just, if you continue being among, as I, as I have, you know, the elder speaking, like, you're just going to continue to experience that suffering. That is, holding that suffering is part of the cost of living this life. And I didn't like that answer either. <laughs> and so uh, I left because I, I believed it was possible uh, to have community and real connection. And I believe that's possible because I think that's what the Buddha taught. And I think that's what the Zen Master picked on Hong Kong. And so that's what I'm doing now. That's why I run the World Beat Sangha here in San Diego and why I put so much energy into teaching and bringing people together around the teachings, whether it's one-on-one or small groups or you know, my larger Sangha all over the world. Because I, I'm not interested in 
any element of the performance of our practice. I believe that our practice is only made real when you're doing it for real across the kitchen table with the person you love, in strong, but with whom in that moment you're in strong disagreement. Thank you. Thank you're you welcome. so much for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So knowing that you meditate and knowing that, that teaching this way of life or teaching this discipline is uh, how you spend your time. How do you spend your time when you're not working? I mean, I don't know how to ask this question yet because as a business owner, it feels like everything I do informs what I do um, for a living or life. Like my whole life is work and work is life. I don't have the kind of job where when I leave my office, I stop working. So being that you immersed yourself so greatly into this discipline and that you're now making it a career to teach others this discipline, how is it that you actually take rest then? Mm, such a great question. I have a couple of answers. The first thing is it's very important, especially if your profession puts you in some role that has natural hierarchical elements, whether it's boss, owner, in my case, teacher, uh, but they're very, very similar. You have to go out of your way. You have to work really hard <laughs> to spend time with other people who love you and care about you, but with whom you are not in that role. Mm. Because it's very easy, right, to just all the time be hanging out with your employees, your clients, your students, your business partners. And then you never get to be just, you know, keeping it personal. And if, if I allowed that, if I did not consciously track that, then months could go by where I was always brother Dave mm -hmm. and where I never got to proverbially let my hair down and just be Dave and just, you know, have a friend who's going to look over across the table and tell me to shut the fuck up. Or tell me that I'm being an asshole or make fun of me for something that I'm doing that's silly. Uh, none of my students are going to do that. Mm. Uh, so that's my first part of the answer is, uh, I think, that, and the most important one, in my opinion. I think that we have to go out of our way, go on a regular basis, spend time with people with <laughs> whom we have no investment other than our friendship. Darling, I think you have hit upon my secret reason of starting this podcast. Mm. like the unconscious reason it's like i i mean this podcast really is just an excuse to speak to other entrepreneurs because it's like <laughs> one of my it's my favorite thing it's like you know we have the same pain points or we have the same growing pains we have the same sort of responsibilities however you want to put it um mm -hmm. you know living in that hierarchy and so we're the ones who like understand each other. It's kind of like the cops, right? The cop yeah, part you're talking exactly. about, like all the exactly. cops, they live that life. So they all hang out together and, but they're in the same tier in that hierarchy. Anyway, thanks for sharing that. And then the second part of my answer is our entire culture is built around however you want to define that culture. This is true. Whether you we're talking about America, whether we're talking about capitalist culture, whether we're talking about, post-industrial modernity, doesn't really matter. I, in my observation, every, every culture that I touch there, if I'm not like in nature with indigenous people, is set up in such a way that 
I am being expected to and encouraged to take 80% of my energy, my awareness, my attention, and direct it externally uh, into doing something, into solving a problem, into responding to the email, into being productive, into establishing my business, my identity, my whatever. Yeah. And that, that only leaves 20% then at best, and I'm being generous with these numbers, yeah. at best for me to focus on myself. And my second answer to, to how to maintain, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, the popular term is work-life balance, but I'm not, I'm not such a fan of that term, but right. how to not just get lost in my business mm-hmm. and that aspect of my identity is to keep that percentage revert that ratio reversed mm-hmm. i pay 80 percent of my attention to myself and then as a consequence of that because i know at any given moment whether i am standing sitting or lying down i know at any given moment whether i am hungry or sated whether i am tired or energized i know and because of that the 20 percent that I then give into external action is incredibly powerful because that 20% then is actions that are connected to my deepest intention because I am focused on them. I am embracing them at all times. I am remembering who I really am. And this is another way to describe what Zen practice is, what mindfulness practice is. And so for me, that means, right? Cause you can't answer it the same way for everybody. For me, that means I spend two hours at minimum by myself sans devices and appointments every single day from when i wake to when i open the laptop and begin work it's two hours i make sure i spend a night under the stars once a month wow. you see what i mean so the, yeah. like the when i when i listen with 80 percent of my energy my body mind and spirit answer me very clearly as in my experience they tell me what i need and i give it to them Right? It's not enough to listen to my heart. I must then do what it says. And so that's the second part of my answer is, is you know, the way to maintain balance is to be training yourself and giving yourself the time and the space and the permission to listen to your heart and then to do what it says. And your heart is never going to tell you to work 80 hours a week. Your heart is never going to tell you to sacrifice your physical health for more money. That's your mind. That's your culture. That's not your deepest intention. And so the way to stay in a place of intentionality is to constantly be in that place of intentionality. (laughs) There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. And as your friend, I can tell you, even for your friends, that 20% is so incredible. Brother Dave, thank you so much for this time. And so is there anything else you would like to say for our, for our listeners? I guess I'll just plug myself and say, yeah. you know, if you're interested in yeah. anything you've heard or if you're you know, at any place in your spiritual path, regardless of whether you consider yourself a Buddhist or a mindfulness practitioner, if you're looking for the kind of support that comes from what I teach, uh, please visit my website, DaveCamilli.com. And there's a million different ways that you can access me from you know, flying to San Diego and coming to a workshop to popping in my YouTube channel and watching, you know, one of the hundred videos that I have there. Yeah, cool. We're going to put all the links in our show notes and yeah, so you can find Brother Dave. Mm -hmm. So thanks for listening.